Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I'm Already Against the Next War, War in Violence, Sacred and Secular. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 1st, 2012. The 4th of July will no doubt see many jet flyovers at parades and baseball games. I find these displays of military might technologically awesome, but morally repulsive. The year 2012 started badly for the American military. In January, an internet video surfaced showing four Marines joking as they urinated on Afghan corpses. In February, soldiers burn Muslim holy books in a garbage dump of Bagram Airfield, and the ensuing riots killed 30 people. Then in March, an Army staff sergeant massacred 17 civilians in two Afghan villages, including nine children. And then in April, the LA Times published two of 18 photos that it received from an anonymous American soldier, showing U.S. troops mugging for the camera as they posed with the body parts of dead Afghan soldiers. When you consider that 2.3 million Americans have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan for more than 10 years, it's easy to interpret these gruesome incidences as very rare exceptions. But it's also easy to imagine, as Yale's chaplain William Sloan Coffin once put it, that war turns some boys into men and it turns others into animals. In fact, David Livingston Smith argues in his book, The Most Dangerous Animal, Human Nature and the Origins of War, that war is not a consequence of nurture, a learned behavior, or what he calls a mere cultural artifact. Rather, he says that war is deeply embedded in human nature, that it's innate in our natural impulse, as such, war is not a pathology of aberrant choice. It's a normal feature of human life. I hope he's wrong. The secular violence and degradation of modern war has its sacred counterparts in ancient scripture. In the Old Testament reading this week from 2 Samuel, David laments the death of Saul who was killed by God because he spared King Agag. We read, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his decapitated body to the wall of Bethshan. In last week's reading, David taunted the Philistines after beheading Goliath. Now the tables were turned and the oppressed became the new oppressor. As for King Agag, Samuel made amends for Saul's mercy, and we read that he, quote, hewed him to pieces, end quote. 
Today we call these three examples war crimes or crimes against humanity. The mutilation of Agag, Saul, and Goliath reminded me of an interview with journalist Chris Hedges, who recalled what he witnessed in 20 years as a war correspondent. His war narrative is separated by Saul's by 3,000 years, but the two accounts are eerily similar. In war, says Hedges, and now I quote, routine death becomes boring. It's why you would go into central Bosnia and see bodies crucified on the sides of barns, or why in El Salvador genitals were stuffed in people's faces. Mutilation, you know, the body as sort of trophy, the body as a kind of performance art, end quote. Nailing Saul's beheaded corpse to the wall of a Philistine temple and the bodies of young soldiers to Bosnian barns are horrific reminders of the true nature of war, whether ancient or modern. They belie the sanitized sound bites of embedded reporters or the patriotic propaganda of government spokesmen. So do my lie of 1968 dragging dead American soldiers through the streets of Mogadishu in 1993, torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib, hanging the charred bodies of American soldiers from a bridge over the Euphrates River, or murdering two dozen civilians in Haditha back in 2005. Hedges calls such desecrations an inevitable consequence of war. They peel back the rhetorical veneer of war to reveal its true nature as what Hedges calls almost pure sin. To learn what real war is like, says Chris Hedges, listen to the losers. The vanquished are better guides than the victors. And I quote Hedges again. The losers see through the empty jingoism of those who use the abstract words of glory, honor, and patriotism to mask the cries of the wounded, the senseless killing, war profiteering, and chest-pounding grief. They know the lies the victors often do not acknowledge, the lies covered up in stately war memorials and mythic war narratives filled with stories of courage and comradeship. They know the lies that permeate the thick, self-important memoirs of amoral statesmen who make wars but do not know war. The vanquished know the essence of war, death. They grasp that war is necrophilia. They see that war is a state of almost pure sin with its goals of hatred and destruction. They know how war fosters alienation, leads inevitably to nihilism, and is a turning away from the sanctity and preservation of life. All other war narratives about war too easily fall prey to the allure and seductiveness of violence, as well as the attraction of the godlike power that comes with the license to kill with impunity. But in a spiral of violence begetting more violence, the oppressed 
often become the new oppressors. The losers savor those bitter memories of the past in hopes of revenge in the future. That's why Slobodan Milosevic war rhetoric reached all the way back to Serbia's humiliation by the Ottomans at the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. When David learned of Saul's death, he executed the messenger who brought the news. Mind you, Saul had conscripted Israel's children for wars, made them domestic slaves, confiscated their lands, and levied exorbitant taxes. He was a war president, a war profiteer who, after defeating the Amalekites, took for himself the best of the sheep and the cattle, all under their pretext of religious piety. Saul, we also read, set up a monument in his own honor. Instead of waging peace, David lamented the death of Saul. He lamented the demise of Israel's military. And in 2 Samuel 1.27, we read, How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. Perhaps lamenting the demise of military violence was predictable for a king who himself was once called a man of war. It's true that some wars are necessary, even unavoidable. Even Hedges admits that some wars are what he calls a moral imperative. The gist of Samantha Power's 2003 Pulitzer Prize book, A Problem from Hell, is precisely that. The moral failure of America to intervene in genocides in places like Bosnia, Rwanda, or Darfur. When we lived in Moscow from 1991 to 1995, Russian war veterans in their 70s would smile and grab our hands as we waited at a metro station, thanking America for what we did in World War II. We were allies against Hitler, they would exclaim. But war as a regrettable last resort, when every eligible citizen soldier does his or her part, is different than the unilateral and preemptive use of military force when waged by the proxy of a professional army and as a de facto tool of diplomacy. Today, less than 1% of the American population serves in the military. Many of the earliest Christians repudiated the violence of war, military service, and even the state itself. Origen of Alexandria, who lived from 185 to 254, perhaps Christianity's early greatest scholar, is one example. In his book Against Celsus, Book 8, Chapter 73, he writes the following words, a poem actually. And as we by our prayers vanquish all the demons that stir up war, and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace. We in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs, when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. 
And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not, indeed, fight under him, although he demands it. But we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. Of course, good Roman citizens considered Origen's words seditious. Things changed radically when Constantine became emperor and ordered Christian emblems on shields and helmets. But his celebration of war and exploitation of the faith was not always the status quo, and it need not be so today. For book this week, I review a title called Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses. The author is Philip Jenkins, New York, HarperCollins, 2011, 310 pages. In 1984, Phyllis Tribble published a book called Texts of Terrors, that explored the Bible's cruel treatment of women. Since then, that book title has served as a proxy for all sorts of violence that the Bible seems to justify. Philip Jenkins, professor at Penn State University, tackles the most terrifying texts of all, those in which God commands his people to exterminate their enemies without mercy. A table of 19 passages lists the most disturbing texts of conquest. For example, there's Deuteronomy 7, 1-2. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. In 1 Samuel 15, God even killed King Saul, precisely because he spared the Amalekite king Agag. We read that Samuel then hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Today we would call these incidences war crimes, or crimes against humanity. Believers have developed numerous interpretive strategies to read these texts. Practically speaking, most believers simply ignore them. Others dismiss them as crude stories of a savage antiquity. Others appeal to a divine wisdom that's incomprehensible to us mere mortals. Still others argue that the enemies like the Canaanites were evil and that they deserved their fate. Many people observe that texts of terror are a problem for most all religions, and that, on par, no one religion is worse than another when it comes to sacred violence. Other interpreters read these texts with a greater or lesser degree of historical skepticism and not as eyewitness reportage. Early Christian exegetes like Origen employed allegorical interpretations. It's also true that a religion is more than its texts, that a minority of extremists don't represent the mainstream majority and that the causes of modern violence can't be reduced to religion alone. The evolution of religion across millennia also suggests progress from the savage to the enlightened. 
And finally, the Bible's historical descriptions of genocide don't necessarily imply theological prescriptions for us today. Still, at the end of the day, these texts of terror were canonized as sacred literature. Jenkins's conclusion comes as a welcome surprise. All these strategies of selective editing aren't helpful or even necessary, he says. Rather, we should read, absorb, comprehend, and even preach these texts of terror. Since these texts were written about 500 years after the purported events, and since they enjoy little to no archaeological support, Jenkins says we should treat these stories with real historical skepticism. He urges us to dig deeper for a core message. He writes, The imagined war against outside peoples and customs symbolized a rejection of any and all things that distract or separate a people or an individual from God. In other words, the core truth of radical monotheism is that the absolute God deserves unconditional obedience from his chosen people. In a line of argument that Jenkins mentions but does not develop, he quotes René Girard of Stanford, who has argued that the Bible is the first text to present sacred violence from the perspective of the victim. And thus, paradoxically, it is for biblical reasons that we criticize the Bible. That might be about as good as it gets when it comes to texts of terror. Philip Jenkins laying down the sword. For film this week, I review a title called Dark Days. It's from the year 2000. Mark Singer produced, directed, and filmed this award-winning documentary about a dozen squatters who lived for many years in the tunnels of New York City's subway system. Shooting the film in black and white accentuates the dark and dank caverns of this family-like community. We meet these people by name, Tommy, Tito, Ralph, Greg, and Dee, the only woman. They might be homeless, but they aren't helpless. In fact, they're extraordinarily resourceful. They've built snug shacks underground. They sweep, paint, decorate, and clean them, cook meals, enjoy their pets, give each other haircuts, do laundry, and set up tripwires as a security alert. It's noisy, dangerous, and full of rats, but it's safe compared to the homeless shelters above ground that they all despise. A badly leaking pipe provides a decent, if frigid, shower. By day, they go above ground, where one man says on a good day he earns $70 recycling glass and plastic bottles. Singer provides no narration at all, but instead gets the people to tell their personal stories. And without exception, these stories are marked by brutal realism, surprising candor, genuine insight, and yes, sadness. When Amtrak evicted the squatters, the Coalition for the Homeless arranged for them to get apartments, and without exception, everyone was thrilled, said one tunnel dweller 
Those were dark days living down there. The film Dark Days. And finally, for poetry this week, in keeping with the theme of the lectionary, the essay, and the book review, and with Fourth of July right around the corner, we've posted a poem called Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. By some accounts, the most famous war poem of World War I. The title, Dulce et Decorum Est, are the first words of a Latin saying which reads, it is sweet and right to die for your country. Wilfred Owen lived from 1893 to 1918. On November 4th, 1918, he was shot and killed near the village of Ors. One week before the armistice bells rang, ending World War I. Dulce et decorum est. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, and drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Wilfred Owen. Dulce et decorum est. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 1st, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.